I'd never seen a company that was willing to put the destiny of the company in the players' hands. I was really intrigued by that. Finding that sweet spot between being very player-focused and data-driven and marrying the two is, is an ongoing challenge. People play your games in different ways and therefore you need to understand what are the relevant type of comms based on their, their play style and how they engage with games. Players are ultimately the heart and soul of every game. Keeping them engaged is more about simply delivering a regular stream of new content, fresh features and challenges. Video game developer Jagex takes some unique approaches to feature testing and player engagement, which could explain why over 270 million people have played their games. Welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast, Apps, Games and Insights. We're your hosts, Dirk Prims and Tamsin Taylor. We are both from Google. From beta testing new features to finding the best way of retaining new players through those critical first few hours of gameplay, engaging and retaining players is a complex business. We are joined by Ben Clark today. He's Senior Global Marketing Director at Jagex. And he's going to give us some insights into how the developer of the popular RuneScape franchise approaches this challenge. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Tamsin. Great to be here. So you've been around mobile. You're a mobile veteran, game veteran from many years back. Tell us, how did it all begin for you? Oh, yeah. So, wow, that was nearly 12 years ago. So my first foray into games was I joined a company called Bandai Namco, who most people know from Pac-Man and from uh, Tekken. So I joined there in a mobile business to run uh, the Northern Europe region. So that was in the days when the mobile games market was predominantly driven by like carriers and mobile phone manufacturers and the distribution channels were all of their carrier and on-device stores and the format was Java. So yeah, many moons ago, way before the fun times of Google Play and the App Store, it was, uh, it was a very different beast then. Did you have to go out and sell to every single carrier? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The whole kind of strategy around getting your games featured was so critical because that's what drove the installs. There wasn't really much of a marketing ecosystem, you know, in the Java carrier days, the marketing that you do would either be on the kind of mobile WAP stores or you would do like cable channels. But a lot of that was done to persuade the games managers to feature your game or to get embeds on device. So it was a really different landscape to what it is now. Do you think it's better now? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it was, you know, it's weird. We're coming to this point where there's this consolidation tipping point happening in mobile again, which was a bit like what happened with the feature phone era with the Java games where, you know, only the top tier publishers could really get the width and breadth of distribution and manage those relationships, whereas, I think in the early days of the smartphone and with Google Play and App Store, there are a lot of indie developers in place. But I think as we're seeing now, that tipping point's coming, it's quite difficult for some of the, the smaller guys to break through and they need like a publishing partner. But definitely better now, for mm. sure. But it's, it's different, right? I mean, free to play wasn't a business model when we were doing the feature phone era. Whereas I think now the technical setup and expertise that you need to manage live games, live operations is very different to ship it and forget and move on. Indeed. When I was working in carrier land, I think it took us three months, maybe four months to set up a new price point. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy times. Or premium games as well. You've been in mobile for a long time. I have to ask a question. How much money do you think you've spent on mobile content? 
Oh, a lot. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I've spent, we, we were talking about this before, probably about like £10,000, I think, is what I've spent on mobile games over the last 10 years, which isn't bad going. You know, a lot of mm. my friends actually uh what we call grinders and they'll just never pay for anything. They'll just play and play and play and play and play and just see how far they can take it. But yeah, sometimes I get a bit... I don't quite have the patience, so I'm willing to buy or pay to progress through certain things and get to some of the fun bits. So, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Don't tell my wife. I don't think she's aware of quite how much it is. Any <laughs> any lucky recipients? Oh, wow, yeah, quite a few, actually. So I think if I go back early to the kind of premium game point, then, you know, I was very addicted to Angry Birds, Cut the Rope, some EA games in there, Tetris and Bejeweled. And then in that shift to free-to-play, there was a ton of stuff. So I was a very early adopter of Clash of Clans. My base was constantly getting destroyed, so I was always trying to replenish my resources and get back in the game and help my teammates. Uh, Draw Something was a game that I loved a lot and, and played a lot and played with friends for a couple of months. A game that I then ended up working on before I joined Natural Motion for CSR Racing. Really loved that game. That was awesome. Candy Crush and Score Hero, and then more recently, games like Golf Clash, Merge Dragons, and mm. Rise of Kingdoms have been enjoying a lot as well. So, I wonder how much my kids spend on mobile games. I hope it's at least good games that they pay it on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just make sure your kids are working and earning their own cash, and then it doesn't matter. Um, we talked a lot about some games which have really good community followings. You mentioned Clash of Clans and and things like that. How did you join Jagex? I originally met the guys in summer 2017 when I was actually pitching a startup I was working on called Boss Mode and, you know, really enjoyed meeting the management team as part of that kind of pitching process, did a lot of research on the company, knew about RuneScape and old school, but not to the level that I know now and in research before joining the company. So I was really intrigued by this sleeping giant, if you will, the fact that this franchise had been live for now 19 years and at the time 17 years, that they had this amazing community. You know, Old School was regularly in the top 10 most streamed games on Twitch. They had this game in terms of Old School where they were allowing the community to vote on what features and content went in game, which I thought, you know, I'd worked with amazing communities in the past, but I'd never seen a company that was willing to put the destiny of the company in the players' hands. And um, yeah, I was really intrigued by that. I thought it was an interesting way to run a business. I thought there were some great people in the team, really enjoyed meeting Phil. Neil and then subsequent my boss who joined Jagex a bit later on John Burns and it just felt like a great place to be and an exciting opportunity to come as they were bringing their first product to mobile and there are some new products in flight within the business as well so yeah it was exciting. Excellent stuff. We're seeing a lot of trends now around this whole growth of cross-platform. It feels as though Jagex has done a really good job being first PC and then moving to mobile. What were some of the challenges they had to overcome and what's been your experience in having a cross-platform game? That's a really good question, right? I think for us, when we originally announced that we were going to be bringing Old School and RuneScape to mobile, our first port of call was to get prototypes into players' hands as soon as possible and validate the core gameplay experience and help us find what they enjoyed doing on device, what they didn't enjoy doing on device address what we could do to fix that experience to make sure that they felt like they could play the game in the same way that they were playing it on PC. 
and we used closed beta to help define our mobile MVP. So we spent six months giving select players access to the early prototype of old school. We run a bunch of questionnaires and on-site research groups with the guys and just tried to find what worked and what didn't. And we used that to kind of help define this is the product. This is the MVP that we need to ship with. And we need to focus all of our efforts on delivering this product for full commercial launch. Amazing. So six months roughly during closed beta. Actually, maybe it was a bit longer, actually, when I think about it. It was probably more like nine months in closed beta, followed by open beta for about six and soft launch for about six. Mm. And how did you choose those lucky people who are in the closed beta? Oh, we have really close relationships with our players anyway. So, you know, we're, we're constantly talking with them and getting our community in to kind of validate uh, new gameplay concepts that we want to develop, new features we want to bring to market. So doing that early kind of mobile research was just an extension of that, really. Excellent. When we think about Jagex, how, do you, how does it monetize on, on desktop versus mobile? For old school, we are primarily a subscription-based business. So we have a currency in game called Bonds, which can be used to purchase subscription, but are also used to buy and trade items within game. And then on RuneScape, we have a mix of subscription and, and microtransactions. So for us, I think what's quite important and different to games that I've worked in that are more microtransaction-based is, you know, it's important to communicate what the value proposition or consumer benefits are of subscription upfront and focus on trying to drive that first time payer conversion. Because in essence, you know, in particular for old school, there is there is only one ongoing cost that we can really get from the consumer. So I think showing all the great stuff that you can get by being a paid subscriber is is really, really important for us and something that we actually, we ran different tests on mobile to find the best way to communicate that to players. So yeah, it's a bit different from the MTX model. Excellent. We're here talking about A-B testing and and how that works. Going from a a PC model to a mobile model, are there any key differences in how you went about running your A-B testing? You mentioned before that you've used the same model when you were looking at the MVP for mobile, but are there any other critical differences? Yeah, I think there's some key learnings in terms of the fact that subscription is definitely becoming more prominent on mobile than ever, but not necessarily in games. I think in some of the other entertainment verticals, you're seeing these guys being some of the top grossing mobile products in the market. But on games, I think we're still educating players around how subscription works. So I think one of the differences between PC and mobile was how do you front load stuff like free trial or introductory pricing and use that as a hook to get people to understand the value of subscription and get them in an ongoing subscription payment model, if you will. Trying to think what else is massively different there. The way that people play is obviously quite different as well, but I don't think that's necessarily relative to the business model. You know, it's more just the interaction with the game and keyboard and mouse versus touch. Yeah. Did you test any intro pricing or free trials? Constantly. Constantly. Testing that. Yeah. I'd say that we're always looking at ways that can help get our lapsed players back into paid membership by running different billing promotions, if you will. And then from a new user perspective, we need to educate the new user on all the things that are great or all the things that a paid subscription unlocks within our products. Mm. It's been a common theme, the lapsed user comment from some of our speakers. So I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have a definition of a lapsed user? 
yeah, currently how we work from a lapsed user perspective is somebody who was previously in paid membership that hasn't been in a reoccurring paid membership for the last 90 days. 90 days. Yeah. Good to hear. Yeah. We're going to consolidate all this and then share it later on because I think this is one of the critical questions that many games companies have, which is how can I keep my users coming back? Coming back to the whole idea of cross-platform games and A-B testing, clearly in order to know whether your test worked, you need to have the right metrics in place. What kind of metrics do you guys care about when you run these tests? What we look at from a payment conversion perspective is we think about progressive days until first-time payer conversion, if you will, um, because obviously we want to get people into that reoccurring rolling subscription and then communicate all the stuff that's great within game. From a retention perspective, I think there's a lot of similarities with other mobile developers in terms of, you know, we look at the early retention as people come through and ways that we can optimize the funnel to keep people in game and communicate all the great experiences they have. And then from an elder retention perspective, it's about more of a player loyalty play, if you will. So how can we keep them in reoccurring subscription by maybe highlighting things that they haven't done in game yet and saying, hey, there's all this great new content mm. you can experience if you go to this part of Gillenor or if you think about promotional offers or subscription hooks that you can give people to come back into paid membership, whether it's like a, a limited time price offer or some type of price offer plus content. You know, there's quite a few things that we do on the PC side over the years. We've accumulated about 150 different type of billing offers that have been tried and tested in in many different spates so yeah 150 yeah remember the game's been live for nearly 19 years now so <laughs> that, that sounds like an admin nightmare i was saying that for years uh, the administrator of the frankfurt stock exchange and the administrator of your everyday massive multiplayer online game or a casual game with a large user base, they can't actually talk about the same things. And probably the people in the gaming world get more upset when things have downtime or are not paid properly or the, the sort you just purchase is not handed to you or whatnot. <laughs> it's funny you say that because there are a lot of videos online around how players talk about how they've used the Grand Exchange, which is an in-game feature that we have that allow players to trade different items in game with each other and you tend to find that our younger player base say that this is their kind of first experience of almost managing a bank account and understanding the dynamics of economics and whatnot because it is it's quite an interesting feature within the game and not many people do it that well and it's something that you know we've had in runescape and old school for quite a long time and a lot of our younger players that's their first entry into managing economies if you will i won't say money directly but it's kind of part of that but it touches on the same thing right yeah yeah yeah. i also assume it's a bit of a touchy area because when you try testing new things and they involve a value that gamers are uh, accustomed to that they collected or anything then you have to be extra careful not to break anything that steers up the community i suppose yeah but how we execute the grand exchanges is the players almost dictate the price if you will it's a very fair to play economy because it's not something that some game companies would look at this very differently but we don't we don't aggressively monetize that right that's something that's a p2p trading economy that we allow the players to within reason dictate what the value of those items are super interesting 
Some companies, when they think about testing new product features, I don't think they do anything as innovative as you do, talking to your customer base and having them vote on the types of features. You mentioned that briefly when we first started chatting. Can you tell us more about the process you follow? This is relative to old school RuneScape, which we have a player poll voting system that sits within the game. Uh, What we do is that when there are any significant new features or new content that we want to add into game, we put that to the player poll and we allow players to go to a little polling booth that we have within the game and they go in and they make a vote and you need to pass by 75% for that feature or content to be added in game. I think what's really interesting about this is that you see how much the players are invested and really care about the product and they feel like it's their game. And for us, we think that that's a USP for Jagex as a company because we're a super player focused company and we believe that by doing this, we can create a better game collectively together. And we also see that that does have an impact in terms of retention metrics as well, right? People have invested so much time and money within this game and they feel like it's important that they have a say in directionally where we go with that. So I have to ask you because, you know, at Google, we're all about data and about statistical observations. There's got to be, you know, enough to to make it a valid assumption. How many people in your community need to vote? It's a 75% pass rate. Out of everyone? Yeah, yeah. It's not set by how many people actually vote. It's just the pass percentage rate that we Mm. use. And can you tell us how many people you have in your community, roughly? From a, a holistic kind of RuneScape perspective, we've had over 270 million people play both RuneScape and Old School over its 19-year history. So. 270 million? Yeah, so there's been a lot of people played this game over the years. And um, one of the common things that we say uh, internally within Jagex is uh, you never really leave RuneScape, you're just AFK, right? So people kind of, they go off and they come back and... You know, we see some quite unusual retention metrics in our game. You know, sometimes people can lapse for two years and then come back, pick up and play for a year or two. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a unique game. That must make calculating your LTV lots of fun. There's some challenges there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask you, have there ever been any surprises in what people have really, really voted for that they really like or that they really don't like? Oh, interesting. No, I don't think there's been any massive surprises. I think, remember that kind of pre-polling, we will already be talking to our kind of select group of players to try and get an understanding around what do we think the community want? What new feature would they like to see? What new content would they like? Is there a narrative or a character that we want to build upon? So we already do some kind of due diligence and research before we put that content or that feature to poll. So I wouldn't say there's any massive crazy surprises there. Yeah. We were talking earlier about value proposition as well. And I think one of the key things here is how you take the players on that journey, right? I think there are there are some nuances in how you can word and phrase things and present things to players that could lead to a negative response where actually the players will really appreciate what it is that you're doing. You just haven't presented the opportunity in the right way. And I think over the last year and, and, and credit to our community team, we've we've taken on some key learnings there and are definitely changing the way that we present future content to players because sometimes it might just be a wording or a communication issue that hasn't really told them exactly what it is we want to do. Mm. Talking to other developers on a daily basis on this topic, some of them say, look, we have so many ideas 
that we want to A-B test. How do you decide which idea you end up putting to your community? There's two ways to look at this, right? There's one which is what feedback are you getting from players? What is it that they want to see more of, less of, and how do you use that to define your product roadmap? And then in parallel, I think there's the second part of that, which is which business problem are you solving, right? How is this content addressing maybe a metric issue that you see or something else that you want to address in game? And I think finding that sweet spot between being very player focused and data driven and marrying the two is is an ongoing challenge that I don't, you know, even the best game developers in the world will say that there's no science to this per se, right? You just have to be diligent and try and execute as best as possible and hopefully you're doing the right things. Given how many people, 270 million people having played one of your games throughout history, I'm sure they're not all in the same country. How do you find differences in appetite for different features across different countries? And do you try and cater for different countries in a unique way or do you have the same service for everyone? We like to keep consistency across the geos because of the very nature of us being a a massively multiplayer online game. That means that I think if there were differences in play style between geos, it would unbalance the game. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't feel like the same game in the same country. So we tend to not narrow down on particular type of feature sets or monetization differences in in different territories we like to keep a consistent playing experience globally for us so but i have worked on games where you know the monetization or the feature set would be very different depending on whether you're in asia or some emerging markets and Mm. you might try new things but for us i feel like it makes sense to keep that fair even playing field and then from a pricing perspective as as a lot of companies do we tend to reference the kind of big mac index around consistency and price points across the different geos given that you still run things then in both countries you have a unique opportunity to compare and contrast i guess ever ever had a case where asia versus the us was starkly different in the results you got or things that you can tell from the first look at it oh this will fly differently in europe versus the us or things like that yeah i think one of the challenges that i would call out that i think we faced and we've worked very hard on with our kind of localization team is the fact that for those of you that are familiar with runescape or old school the humor is quintessentially british and um, <laughs> sometimes that kind of Monty Python-esque humor doesn't translate into all territories. So it's important that we work with the localization team to try and find a sweet spot in making sure that something makes sense to players in non-English speaking geos. So we've definitely done a lot of work on that over the years and have tried to create something that translates well and still has that humorous touch, but sometimes loses the Britishness where it's not something that culturally you can get across. So yeah, we've had moments like that. We're still learning as well. You know, we're, we're making improvements and, you know, we're constantly looking to deliver the best experience for our non-English speaking players. And do you leverage the community for that translation or the localization, or do you have a team of people in-house who do that? Yeah, there's like a local, well, there's a localization team and then there's a player support team and they work quite closely with people in the non-English speaking geos to kind of share feedback on improvements that we can make and how we can make this something that works well and non-English speaking in country. So yeah, we do our best in that area and we're definitely, um, we've made some investment in that area recently and we're looking to improve how we work, so yeah. Excellent. Ongoing is what I would say there. 
coming back to the idea of testing, just for the listeners at home, if they're thinking, okay, right, I need, really need to start A-B testing my features, how often should you should a developer be running these tests? What's kind of frequency you'd look at? I think for me, and this isn't actually something that I would say is 100% relevant to what we do between RuneScape and Old School and more just a key learning of being in the industry for 12 years is first you need to think about what is the business problem that you're solving? Why are you running this A-B test? Sometimes people just do it for the sake of, I've got this idea and I've got that idea and I wanna see what one works best. And that's a dangerous game to play. I think you can get a lot of confusing metrics by doing that. So for me, it's about understanding what business problem you're solving, looking at two possible ways of solving that problem, and then finding what that optimum time period is working with your BI or your analyst guys to kind of understand for it to be statistically relevant, we need, I don't know, 100,000 people to play this across a period of two weeks and then we'll understand if A or B is the preferred feature set or way of executing whatever thing you're A, B testing. Excellent. Good to hear. If we think about the kind of people who are needed to run these tests, you mentioned an analyst. Who else are the critical people? Yeah, I mean, having a great product management team is key, right? You need to have people who understand the game that you've built, who you've built it for. You need to understand the economics or the engagement side, because not all A-B tests are around monetization, right? They're just about delivering a better player experience. So I'd say that kind of core team that you need there, BI analysts, good product management, and then also, depending on how you're trying to drive that scale is, you know, the relationship with your user acquisition team, because you need to make sure that the quality of users that are coming in and experiencing this in A-B tests, make sure that it's giving you the right signals around how you can improve your game downstream. And I have seen examples of A-B tests being run, say, where maybe there was some featuring happening from a partner where the quality of that traffic might not be the same as what you would see from page UA. And that can lead to design decisions that will ultimately not succeed. It is tough. It's very tough. I think it's, you know, in this new day and age, you know, I was hearing on the latest Twig podcast that that relationship between product management and user acquisition is more important than ever because, you know, ultimately, and, and we do this at Jagex, which is look at the quality of the people that are coming in top of funnel, and then you need to understand what they're doing once they hit the game. And product management, user acquisition, retention specialists should be in lockstep, making sure that all those different consumer touch points are harmonious and working together. How do you achieve that from an org structure perspective? It's a good question. We're, we're currently looking at that now. So for me, I think that you need to break it down between top of funnel, which is always user acquisition, stroke marketing, which teams are bringing people into the game? How do you qualify the quality of the traffic or the players that you're bringing in and making sure that they're sticking around and adding value to the product? I think the moment that a player hits the game, as in like opens the game, signs up or registers and is in the first time user experience, then that becomes a kind of product management development play and those teams should be looking at those metrics. And then kind of literally from the first couple of hours of play, you need to think about how your retention team makes sure that you keep those players in the game. Mm. So you may find that someone 
has played for 10 hours but not got past a certain point in game and how can you automate data to send signals to like say your crm team so that you can send them an email and go hey i've seen that you're just stuck in tutorial island do you know you can do x y and z in the game or yeah we're running this pvp tournament this weekend you might be interested and you know there's a lot of um science and data that goes behind that and then also player personas and segmentation as well because as players start to get into kind of circa 20 hours in the game sometimes people play your games in different ways and therefore you need to understand what are the relevant type of comms based on their their play style and how they engage with games and we kind of have four set personas within our business that we try to break down what type of features that they like specifically within game how do we cater to what it is that they like and dislike and then how do we manage all of our marketing comms around that to make sure that they're staying engaged and happy in game so it's not just about getting anyone in the door ua people maybe they need a retention target well i'll have a good retention team right yes. i think that this is becoming ever more prevalent right now is the fact that it is cheaper to retain players in game than it is to acquire them and especially in mobile where it's a very uh, competitive market and there are some people with uh, deep pockets that can outbid you and therefore make it challenging for you to work in the acquisition space so yeah i think from a subscription perspective there's some good tools that are available on android and ios that can help keep people in retained subscription but ultimately my recommendation is that you need to build a tech stack so that you can segment the type of players as they come in and find the appropriate communication channel to keep them engaged in your game. And as well as think about like technologies as well. So a lot of partners that are using advertising in game, can you use that same ad tech stack to maybe surface videos to players? So we had a couple of ideas in the past where, you know, you do weekly videos to players where it's almost like a 60, 90 second of, here's the cool stuff that's coming out next week. And I think surfacing that within the game is probably the most valuable real estate you have. You know, we focus a lot on social channels and community, but if someone's in the game, you need to communicate all the cool stuff that's going on. And especially in this day and age where people aren't time rich and they're playing multiple games, you know, how you surface your live ops and the value proposition is key. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good point. And I haven't heard about the video idea before. So I'll let my, uh, my console product managers know because that's a constant challenge we have as well. How do we tell developers about all the cool stuff that's being launched on the console? Like real-time developer notifications for, you know, knowing when your customers are churning out. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I have to have uh, um, a plug. No, 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 it's all good. I mean, I remember at EA, there's a huge dashboard in the DICE office in Sweden, which just literally shows what every single player in the world is doing in their games at any one point. Um, and you know, there was one at Polarium as well, and it's it, it's it's interesting, right? And I think it's important that you find good game developers that really understand how to bring the creative side and the business science side together as one, because there is definitely an art in that. It's not an easy thing to do. There are some people that are better at one than the other, and finding that that good dynamic mix of the two is key in today's games industry. We really love to hear about war stories because it, we, we hear about all <laughs> success cases, but sometimes it's really nice to hear what went wrong and then how was it salvaged. We wonder if you have any stories around stuff that's gone wrong when you've tried to maybe launch something you thought you'd tested and you thought was going to go well, and then it didn't. But then you salvaged it. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I have to be careful what I say here, but having been through the evolution of premium into free-to-play games and understanding that dynamic in terms of um, when we first entered into free-to-play in mobile, there wasn't really a guidebook or best practice around how to do soft launch and how to optimise games. And a couple of examples of good war stories Um one whilst I was at EA where we were launching a pretty big mobile game, but we had a relatively uh, short soft launch period. And in that period, it was just fair to say that we didn't quite anticipate the scale that was to come from the global launch. And we did this kind of AAA global launch with all the key partners and marketing machine. And ultimately, I think we got like four or five million installs in like 48 hours and the game crashed. Just wasn't ready for that level of players to come into the game. And ultimately, we had to remove that game from sale, go back to the drawing board, make sure that we dealt with all of the known issues that we'd experienced in that first launch period. And then think about as a business, how we launch products moving forward and what the optimum soft launch period is how we test for server capacity and scale, as well as the go-to de facto's that we have now around the optimization of the economy and optimizing towards retention targets, et cetera. So yeah, that was a really good lesson and don't underestimate the scale that mobile distribution channels can bring you today. And the fact that we had something which we knew was a great game and was a very strong IP, but we didn't quite anticipate that scale so quickly, which, you know, now is, to become the norm and with Call of Duty driving insane numbers in its first week of launch. But at that time period, I think we were all taken aback by the sheer scale. And, you know, it was definitely a good learning curve for me around um, how important soft launch is and as a business really defining what it is that you're validating in soft launch mm. before you kind of open the floodgates. Do you test in specific countries for your soft launch? Yeah, in all of the companies that we've been at, it's kind of a hybrid of looking at where the highest customer affinity is with the lowest acquisition costs and making sure that we can find that sweet spot in terms of being able to cost effectively scale the product and make sure that that data or insight that we're getting from players is super relevant. Like Excellent. I said, otherwise you can optimize a game towards the wrong audience and then you go Canada and US and you're like, oh, it isn't performing the same. And there are reasons why as mm. to earlier point around geos and differences and whatnot. One last question I have, which is, if we think about a comment you made at the beginning of the podcast around market consolidation, you know, we're seeing a lot of mergers, acquisitions happening, and we're seeing a lot of companies publishing through other larger entities. If you're a small indie developer, maybe one that's adopting in-app purchase as a commercial model or subscriptions, and you really want to launch more quickly, bearing in mind you want to have like a good period in soft launch, et cetera, what are some of the tools that you know of that can help them A-B test quickly so they can get some product feedback and get a feel for product market fit sooner? To be fair, I think this is more of a product question than me because I'm the kind of marketing publishing guy, right? But I wouldn't necessarily say products, but what I think is key for small developers is for them to have a good understanding of what great looks like and then kind of almost reverse engineer that and work back to go, how do we get to that point? I see a lot of people almost throwing enough mud and seeing what sticks around how can we drive better early retention or how can we drive that first time payer conversion and I think 
the best thing you can do is have a realistic kind of understanding of the competitive landscape, if you will. What do the games that we aspire to be close to, what does their day one, their day seven, their day 30 look like? Why do we think it's that way? Is it a brand affinity piece? Is it because they're onboarding so great? You know, whatever those things are, really understand the competition. And when you're a small guy, extrapolate those key learnings and try to apply those key learnings or things that you see in product that you aspire to be like into your own product. And then you need to progressively understand how you roll out features and relevant A-B testing to get to the point where hopefully you're seeing meaningful increase, right? It can be challenging though. I have consulted and worked on projects where I've seen what I thought were quite good ideas executed and see no meaningful change. And that can be quite frustrating, especially for passionate creatives and devs teams that want to see that velocity move a lot quicker. But, but look, to me, it's always a hybrid of understanding what your product USPs are, understanding who your audience is and who it is that wants to play your product or game, and then optimizing and prioritizing what the key KPIs are, understanding what things you can do to move towards those kind of KPI targets, if you will. Excellent, great words of wisdom there. They're all the questions I had, and I think you've shared with us such rich insights, Ben, so thank you. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. No, pleasure, guys. Thanks so much, Ben, for your insights. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us for this Apps, Games and Insights podcast. If you have any thoughts on the topic raised, we'd love to hear from you at Google Play Devs on Twitter. Join us for a new episode next week where we'll be talking to Android software engineer for the BBC iPlayer and accessibility champion, Kerry Lindsay, and senior Android developer for Sounds, Rosalind Whittam from the BBC. They're going to tell us how to make your app more inclusive and accessible to the 1 billion people around the world with a disability.